in three, in two, in one. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Tim Anderson, the appraiser's advocate, and we call this one an interview with Rachel Massey because we're interviewing Rachel Massey. Rachel, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it very much. How are you? I am great, Tim. How are you doing? So very fine. Thank you. Your family's well? Absolutely. Everybody is safely sheltered in our household. My son is working, but my husband and I are nicely sheltered in place. All right. Very good. I'm, I'm pleased that you're safe. Rachel, we're going to talk about various things today. But before we get started, uh, please give the listeners a little bit of background on yourself. And I know that you don't like to toot your own horn. That's okay. Go ahead. This time you get to toot it. So go ahead. Okay. Um, I have been appraising in the Ann Arbor area since 1989. So 30 plus years now. Prior to that, I sold real estate for five years, also in this area, and I grew up here. So I've got a wealth of background in Ann Arbor and Washtenaw County. During this time, I've also had roles in and out of the fee world. Most of the time I've been a fee appraiser, but I've also worked for large mortgage lenders dealing with fee panel management, and I've done repurchase demand reviews. I've done work for a governance group related to audits. I've also worked under a fraud and claims group on large-scale cases, upwards of 400 houses in a large flipping scheme, I would call it that. So we had a pretty varied background. I've never reviewed on a surface level. All the review jobs that I've had have been really deep dive work, but I've been in and out of the fee world. I'm in the fee world now and have been for a couple of years again. Okay, thank you. Let me, I'm, since you won't toot your horn, I will. You have a few designations, a few initials after your name. What are they? Oh, I'm an SRA with the Appraisal Institute and an AIRRS, that's the review designation. And I was, I believe, the second person to get it, which was pretty exciting. I have the IFA from the now no longer National Association of Independent Fee Appraisers. They merged with the American Society of Appraisers, and I have an ASA from there. So I think it's safe to assume that you know what you're doing. I hope so. You have a good, you have a pretty good grasp of it. Okay. All right. Rachel, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for taking that time to bring us up to speed. Now, let's get into the meat of all of this. We're in the middle of COVID-19. Nobody has a clue with where real estate prices are going, where real estate appraisal is going. It, it's totally up in the air. So let me ask you this question. In the last recession, appraisers took a lot of blame for the crash, whether they deserved it or not, they got a lot of blame for it. Do you think we're going to be looking at the same kind of situation when C-19 eventually peters out? In other words, when all the defaults start to occur, is it going to be the appraiser's fault that uh, those took place? So it is different than last time, but we always have this issue of when there is a loss, 
there is going to be the search for the cause of the loss. So people are going to lose their jobs and there are going to be health issues that affect people's finances. And we're all going to be in a very bad position, not all of us, but many of us, through absolutely no fault of your planning. And so if there are multiple foreclosures because people cannot pay their loans, then lenders are going to look for where they can lessen some of that loss. Appraisers are an easy target. And I will say that it is extremely rare that an appraisal will have the, be the catalyst for anybody's loss. The loss is due to people's circumstances. It's due to poor underwriting, but it's very rarely due to the appraisal. But the appraisal is a target, and appraisers carry errors and omissions insurance, and that also is a target. So yeah, I do, I do believe we are going to see an increase in the repurchase demands that are going to focus on the minutia of an appraisal report. Okay, now let's stay with that theme, if we may. Given the fact that appraisers are an easy target, as you indicated, given the fact that we do carry E&O you know, insurance, because usually it's tough to get work if you don't have E&O you know, insurance, what should an appraiser do or not do in order to lessen, in order to mitigate the chances of getting that nasty letter from the state or getting that subpoena where, wherein instead of being an expert witness, you're going to be a defendant? I believe the best thing that we can do as appraisers, first off, is slow down. And now, what, what do you mean by slow down? Speed kills. So many appraisers who have got in trouble in the past have gotten in trouble because they were really fast doing as much work as possible. And of course, we need to work. And this is how we make our income. But that's when we have, well, that's when we tend to have errors is when we go too fast. So that would be my first thing is to slow down a bit. Really think about what you're doing. Uh, a very robust market conditions report, I think, is a must in this market. Really analyzing what is going on with the market as of the effective date. Back in the foreclosure crisis of 2007, 8, 9, the biggest issue that I would see, or the number one issue I would see, would be not adequately addressing market conditions. So the appraisal would say that the market is increasing or stable when all indications were that the market was in free fall. So this is something that we have to pay attention to. Of course, we have the 1004MC, which is imperfect. It's certainly not the be-all and end-all, but what it does is it gives the appraiser a framework to actually start to think about what's going on in the market. And so we don't have that as, an, as a requirement, but we still need to analyze the market. And I think this is a place that everyone who is doing appraisals today should really spend a lot of time really trying to figure out what's going on with the market. And in that, not only the statistics and looking at how many houses are coming on the market, how many of them are going under contract, uh, what's happening with prices, are we having price adjustments downward, are we having price adjustments upward, are we having multiple offers and bidding wars, what is going on, talk to the real estate agents and find out what they're experiencing. 
but watch the MLS like a hawk. In particular, that 24-hour report, which most MLS have, that shows how many are going on the market and how many are going off the market. So what you're saying is appraisers need to be a little bit more anal analytical. They need to get a little bit more into depth on what they're doing. Is that correct? On the market conditions, yes. And also other other aspects. I think that what would be really beneficial for all appraisers who do mortgage assignments to do is to pull out Fannie Mae's selling guide and go to the unacceptable appraisal practices section and make sure that they are not violating any of the 16 items that are discussed by Fannie Mae as unacceptable appraisal practices. Okay, I'm familiar with the 16. You're familiar with the 16. Some of our listeners may not be. Uh, without going through all 16 of them, because we simply don't have time, uh, what are one or two that you would really suggest an appraiser become familiar with? Oh my goodness, and I had 10 of them written down. Uh, so some of the ones that I think are most important are misrepresentation of the physical characteristics of the subject property improvements or the comparable sales. So that's one that is ten, has a tendency to be something that can really get beat up on. Failure to comment on negative factors with respect to the subject neighborhood, the subject property, or proximity of the subject property to adverse influences. So that's when the property backs to a toxic waste site and the appraisal doesn't address it. Uh, failure to adequately analyze and report any current contract of sale, option, offering, or listing of the subject property and the prior sales of the subject property and the comparable sales. So not just the 36-month period for the subject and the 12-month period for the listings, for the sales that are used, but also don't stop at that, is the house currently listed, and only analyze that current listing. Sometimes houses are on the market multiple times, and you might find that there is a series of price reductions, and then the house is taken off the market for a couple of weeks and put back on at a higher price and sells. We need to understand what happened and not just look at that most recent listing, but what happened during that cycle. It's very possible that during this price reduction period, the realtor was working very hard with the seller on, you need to do these renovations if you're going to sell the property. And so they take it off the market and they, they replace all the carpeting and they replace countertops and new appliances. And then they put it back on the market and the market says, yay, we'll buy it. But if you are only analyzing the current information, you're missing something. And that can be a target. So that's one of them. Selection and use of inappropriate comparable sales. And failure to use comparable sales that are most locationally and physically similar to the subject property. Well, that seems most evident, you know, that this would be important. But as a independent fee appraiser, I've certainly gone to appointments where the realtor will hand me their package of sales. And that package of sales may be completely inappropriate. I had one where it was a standard subdivision house in a standard subdivision with plenty of sales. And the package of sales, excuse me, the package of sales that the realtor had provided included properties on 10 to 15 acres, 10 miles away. Well, I'm not going to use those. I have the comparables within the neighborhood. So 
the agent had provided that just because they knew that it wasn't going to appraise at sales price. And this was just their way of trying to influence me. And if I had used those, that would have been something that would have been any reviewer who was astute enough, let alone the, the collateral under, underwriter, would have got that. So those are some of them. I'm just seeing if there's any other ones that I want you to address, that I want to address. Uh, comparable sales used in the valuation process when the appraiser has not personally inspected the exterior. That's something that, you know, we now have these proxy picks and people who take photos for the appraiser. Use of adjustments to comparable sales that do not reflect market reaction to the differences between the subject property and the comparable sales. I can think of somebody doing a massive renovation on a house and using it as a sale on an appraisal that the house hasn't been renovated and yet only using a 10% line adjustment because that's what they're used to using. They don't want to exceed that 10% line adjustment, even though the market may recognize 20 or 30 or 40% difference. The CU, the collateral underwriter, does indicate these kinds of issues. Not supporting adjustments in the sales comparison approach. Failure to make adjustments when they're clearly indicated. Use of data, particularly comparable sales data provided by parties that have a financial interest in the sale or the financing of the subject property without the appraiser's verification of the information from a disinterested source. So these are a whole bunch of them. There's a lot more of them as well. Let me hit this one too, which is development of an appraisal or reporting an appraisal in a manner or direction that favors the cause of either the client or any related party the amount of the opinion of value, the attainment of a specific result, or the occurrence of a subsequent event in order to receive compensation or employment for performing the appraisal or anticipation of receiving future assignments. So basically, something we sign we're not doing. Now, Rachel, it sounds to me like you know a whole lot about USPAP. Why would that be? Because I'm a geek, <laughs> and I find it very fascinating. And, and I'm trying... And because you're a USPAP instructor, right? Yes, because I'm a USPAP instructor. I had to sneak that in there. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, let's go back. You mentioned misrepresentation. Let's go back to that concept. As of January, uh, excuse me, yes, at January, yes. As of January 1st this year, 2020, USPAP has a definition of misleading, which it never had before. Would you like to tell us what you think of that definition and how you think it might be, oh, let's say, enforced by the states? Uh, is it going to be enforced by the states in the appraiser's favor or against the appraiser? I would love to hear actually what you think about this. Well, okay. <laughs> I'll be on your podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> you talk to me about this. I mean, I know you've done one about it, but I, I think that you have some very interesting thoughts and I'd like to hear what you think. Well, basically, Rachel, it comes down to the fact that the first three words, well, not the first three words, but three important words are intentionally or unintentionally. The mm -hmm. appraiser misstates uh, or uh, basically makes any kind of an error could render something as simple as typing 1324 Elm Street when the property's address is really 1234 Elm Street, 
And because the definition says unintentionally or intentionally, then something as minor as a transposition of numbers in an address could, let me stress, could ascend to an ethics violation rather than merely an administrative violation, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense. But then the Appraisal Foundation does not consult with me, so it does not get the benefit of my incredibly wonderful opinions. Now, your turn. (laughs) Well, first off, we also still have the uh, comment of perfection being impossible to attain. So we're never going to have a perfect appraisal. I would like to think my appraisal reports are perfect, but in reality, I know that I'm not perfect. Therefore, my appraisal reports won't be perfect either. So perfection is impossible to attain. I can't imagine my state board, at least, and I'm in Michigan, considering the transposition of numbers for an address to be an ethics violation. So that part of unintentional does bother me. But I'm, I guess, maybe less concerned about it than you, but I have not delved into it. And I have not taught USPAP yet this cycle, so I haven't really sat down with it and tried to wrap my head around it as well as you have, which is why I punted back to you anyway. Well, that's okay. Much, Don't worry about it. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> much more, uh, much more versed in it than I am. I just, you know, I'm in the great state of Michigan, and we actually have a, a very good appraisal board. And our state investigators are two appraisers and they're good. And so we don't have we don't have a rogue board that's out to get every appraiser for any little tiny mistake. But I I do realize that there are some appraisers in states that actually seem to want to eliminate all appraisers from the state. That's interesting. Why why do you think that they want to eliminate appraisers from the state? Well, this is just what I hear from or see on social media about how appraisers feel that they've been railroaded and that they have not made any mistakes, yet the board catches them on minor issues such as typos that could become an ethics violation because they unintentionally had the wrong address. Which basically is my concern, given the definition of misleading. Um, Correct. All right, we'll we'll talk about that specifically in another podcast. Let me let me ask you another question. A, f- a few minutes ago, you were talking about uh, disclosing the condition of the subject, adverse conditions in the neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, explain that. Ex- ex- expand on that. What is it the appraiser should disclose? In other words, should the appraiser say, "Oh, the wall needs to be painted"? It is something that trivial? all that important that it has to go into an appraisal? The wall being painted, I would say no, but it goes to overall condition of the property. So one thing that I've had, that I've run into myself in the fee world is addressing things like, I'll see that the ceiling has a a water stain on it and I'll call it out in the appraisal report. And maybe I'll make it subject to a roofing inspection. You can imagine how popular I am with the loan officers. Not very. So when you start to ignore things like that, that can be an item that becomes a trigger too. Because what if that is an actual active leak? And not only did you have this just one little bit of evidence of water, but it went all the way down the walls, and then they've got a big problem with water infiltration elsewhere in the property. And the appraiser saw it, but didn't note it. 
Rachel, you talk about seeing the brown stain on the ceiling and the thought that there could be an active leak and you're willing to make the appraisal subject to somebody getting in and making sure that the leak has uh, been taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's obviously something serious uh, that, that could affect the structural integrity of the house. How about a functional issue? How is an appraiser supposed to recognize a functional obsolescence factor? Because MLS is not going to say, oh, this house is functionally obsolete. No. So how are, how is an appraiser supposed to recognize a functional obsolescence factor in a particular property or even in a comparable? Well, the comparables are going to be more difficult if the appraiser isn't seeing it. And the appraiser really does have to use their thinking cap. So I'll, I like to throw out examples. I had an example of an appraisal that I worked on where the master bedroom, there were three bedrooms in the house the master or the owner's suite, whatever you want to call it, had a bathroom. And the other two bedrooms that were in the same hallway did not have access to a bathroom. To get to the only other bathroom in the house, you had to walk through the kitchen, through the dining room, through the laundry room, to the second bathroom. Well, that's a functional problem. But if you're just looking at it and going, well, it's three bedrooms, two baths, that then you wouldn't really think about it. The homeowner had built the house themselves, and it was perfect for them. They had no problem with it. But when you start to think about who is going to buy this house and is it something that the vast majority of buyers are going to think is a problem? Yeah, that's a functional issue. Uh, you have functional issues quite often, again, with a bathroom situation where you have an old farmhouse where the one bathroom in the house is on the main floor and all the bedrooms are upstairs and you have steep stairs. And boy, when you're getting older and you have to go down the stairs in the middle of the night to use the one bathroom, it could be a real issue. So that's a that's a common kind of functional issue. Uh, you could have a functional issue such as having a small small yard with no place to put a garage and not having a garage where every other house in the area has a garage and you just don't have the ability to put one in. Let me ask you a question about old houses. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of old houses in, in the United States. They've been oh, well. Yes. <laughs> they've been well maintained. They were pro probably when when they were first constructed. They were probably built by hand, and they probably got two by sixes instead of two by fours as studs. And the studs may be a, a hickory or maple or oak. In other words, a hard a hardwood that the bugs aren't going to eat very well. Now, so you're, you've got a hundred year old house. Is a hundred year old house not, excuse me, is a 100-year-old house in and of itself a functional obsolescence because it's not built to current standards? Sorry for the pause. I'm thinking about this. I, I don't think it is. I think that it becomes an issue of what's expected. And at least in my market, we have a real desire for the old houses. People really like these old houses, but they still have to have a functioning floor plan. And that's why I'm saying that if you only have one bathroom and it's on the main floor of the house when the bedrooms are upstairs, that is a functional issue. Okay, from a standpoint of functionality, let's transition over to what's going on right now. We're we're in the midst of still in the midst of C19. And oh, Fannie May the beginning of it. Uh, okay. And Fannie Mae has said, okay, guys, it's okay to use a 1004 form, even though you're not going to inspect the inside of the property. And all you have to do is disclose in the proper places using the proper language that you didn't inspect 
the inside of the property, even though you're using the 1004 form. Do you see that as a problem that is going to come back to bite appraisers in six months, 12 months, 18 months, etc.? It could, and I think it would depend on what kind of houses it is being done on. So if I had a 1004 request on a newer house that I'm very familiar with the floor plan and the builder, and I know what a two-year-old house from that builder is going to look like, I would have much less of an issue with it than were it one of those 100-year-old houses with the bedrooms upstairs and the bathroom on the main floor. If I had no real, I wouldn't do it if I didn't feel confident about the data that was being supplied by the homeowner or the occupant of the property. What? And, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Excuse I me. was just going to say, and using those disclaimers that are included with uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, with the, uh, the, the COVID-19 language that is inserted. And everywhere that you talk about anything that you've got for information and you say you got it from the homeowner, this is from the homeowner. The photos that you have in the report, this is from the homeowner taken on this date, this, this time. Do you think that it is proper to use photographs taken by the homeowner in your report, even though you've never seen the inside of the property? I actually do not have a problem with it, with all the proper disclosures of what it is. I actually, I've done one. <laughs> I've done one of these, and I did it on a house that I know the neighborhood really well and the builder really well, and it was a two-year-old house. So it's like, yeah, I, I think this one worked. But I also had the homeowner fill out and sign. Actually, they didn't sign it, but they, they attested that everything they gave me was correct. And I put it right in the report when they told me everything that they did to the house and the condition and all of that. So that goes right in the report, as well as I did not take these photos. These are from the homeowner and just making sure that you disclose, disclose, disclose. So now I'm not doing them anymore. I've done one. I don't feel comfortable with them. So your option in this particular case is not to do the appraisal unless you can put boots in the living room. Is that correct? In, I mean, I'm doing 2055s because 2055s are exterior only, but the 1004 desktop, it it, it is allowable and the foundation has had communication about this, the Appraisal Foundation, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they are very clear that they can do this. And it's just everybody has their own level of comfort. So something that I'm not comfortable with doesn't mean that other appraisers might not be comfortable with it. So it's just your own level of comfort. I know you can do it. And you know, as well as I do, that we have a lot of flexibility. And in this very difficult time that we're going through, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have, and FHA and VA have all said, we understand these are extraordinary times. And so we have to continue to help the borrowers who are trying to get loans. And we are part of the financial industry. And so I don't have a problem with it. I just have a problem with it myself with certain properties. So again, the one that I did, I wasn't uncomfortable with it because I know the builders work and I know what a two-year-old house from that builder looks like. And I know the neighborhood well. I would not do it for a older house or a house that I didn't have good information about. Now I've done exterior only with the occupants photos 
properly disclosed for estate work. Because I'm going to use the extraordinary assumption anyway that the condition is as it's described. And you just have to disclose, 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 and disclose some more what exactly you're doing and why you're doing it. In, in one instance I had with the uh, an estate, the surviving party was medically fragile and nobody was able to get in the house. Even the client's daughter couldn't go in the house. So the only person who could go in the house was the aide who was taking care of the medically fragile person who was living there. Well, they still needed to file their estate tax on the person who was deceased. I see. Okay. Let's let's talk for just a minute. I, I want to back up for just a minute. The uh, You've been involved in, in buybacks for many yes. years. Now, just so appraisers understand, you know, we do an appraisal, we turn it in, and then we hopefully never hear about it again. We just get the check and move on to the next one. But yet that appraisal is sitting in a file drawer possibly electronically, but it's sitting in a file drawer somewhere and somebody can pull it out and look at it at just about any time. So what does an appraiser need to understand about the concept of a buyback and how it affects the appraiser positively and how it affects the appraiser negatively? So first off, appraisals, and I don't know if I already said this, but it's something I like to say is that they have life and they have legs. So they last a long time even though your value is of this specific date, but they'll circulate for a long time and they have legs because you just never know where they're going to go. So life and legs, it's always important to think about that when you develop an opinion of value and you report it. What appraisers need to consider for repurchases is that the lender likely either has suffered a loss and so they're re-examining the loan file or A random audit through one of the GSEs has found some material flaws, they consider material flaws, in the appraisal report and have gone back to the lender who sold them the loan to repurchase that. I've done a lot more on that end than on the actual being in the audit side where, you know, you'd be looking at the appraisals for mistakes, but actually in the the side of trying to help defend the appraisal report when it's been found by one of the GSEs to have some issues. And when it's found to have some issues, what are the ramifications for the appraiser? Well, the appraiser could end up on the lender's not so nice list, maybe. That was very very polite of you, Rachel. Thank you. (laughs) The naughty list and the nice, not so nice list and the nice list. So it it really would depend on if the lender went back to the appraiser who did the work and said, hey, you know, Tim Anderson, you did this appraisal for us five years ago and we're, we have a repurchase demand and we really would like your help defending this. And you said, okay, let me see. And, you know, what are the issues that they're coming back at? And yeah, oh, I've got that information. Let me let me forward the support support to you so that you can defend this. Well, I think that most lenders are going to say, Tim Anderson, you're great. Thank you very much for helping us. Whereas if you're angry and say, you know, I don't like you guys. I told you, Bank ABC, never to darken my doorstep again. I'm not going to help you. Well, you'll probably be put in a better in a different light. So I think it's willingness to help and also whether you actually have the information available to help. And sometimes the appraisal was really, no. there's just no way to support it. And that could be more trouble for that appraiser. And the lender who was 
um, required to repurchase that loan back from one of the GSEs may go and try and go back on the appraiser for the damages. And that's where the appraiser's e and insurance would come in if indeed it is shown that the appraiser made some kind of, uh, of error in the appraisal. Is that correct? Correct. Rachel, and I don't oh. think it would be, it wouldn't be, I'm sorry, it wouldn't be minor errors. It would be more egregious stuff. It would have to be substantial. It would have to be substantial. Okay. In other words, making up a sale, that, that, that would probably get the appraiser in trouble. Uh, making up a sale would be a real problem, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Now, again, we're getting close to the end. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, you are a, a USPAP instructor. You have done these types of reviews. Please tell us what you think are the three biggest problems underwriters and lenders have with an appraisal. In other words, the appraisal comes in, they, they take a look at it. What are the three big headaches that the lenders and the AMCs have from an appraisal? One of the big things is lack of meaningful information in the appraisal report. A bunch of boilerplate about the neighborhood, a bunch of boilerplate about the subject, a bunch of boilerplate about the comparables with no substantive reconciliation within each approach to value as well as all approaches to value. So that's that's a big one. This isn't so much on a repurchase issue, but when I've reviewed, I've seen a lot of appraisals that will take a relatively narrow unadjusted sales price range and through the magic of the adjustment process, widen the range, which is just wait, illogical. Wait a minute. Let me, let, me, let me see if I understand here. <laughs> you, you start out with the, the comps before adjustments are all relatively close to each other, but yet after the adjustments, they're further apart than they were before? Yes. And appraisers don't catch that problem? No. I have seen it across the board in reviewing that I have done. And I've seen it in places that I should never have seen it, <laughs> where the appraiser should know better that the adjustment process is really designed to help make those sales closer to the subject property. So there's no reason for them to become wider. The, the range shouldn't become wider. One thing I see sometimes, which just has boggled my mind, is if for example, you have a sale that is $100,000 and all the adjustments are going downward. So then the appraised value, but not the appraised value, but the adjusted sales price of that comparable has gone from 100000 down to 80000 So the indication is that $100,000 sale is superior to the subject, but the appraised value is one hundred and twenty. Rachel, let's talk for just a minute about reconciliation. Now, there isn't a lot of room on the 1004 form to write a reconciliation, but according to USPAP, and that's standard rule 1-5A and B, and uh, excuse me, 1-6A and B, and then according to what you look for as a reviewer in a reconciliation, what does an appraiser need to put in there to persuade you as a reviewer that what the appraiser has done is a proper and in compliance with standards one and two. As a reviewer, ideally, I would like to see some discussion about the comparable sales that were used, which ones are going to be most relevant and why they're most relevant, and how they were reconciled to a number. So if four sales are used in an appraisal report, 
on the comparable sales section. And these sales, say, are between 100,000 and 120,000. And the sale that is a model match of the subject property and is proximate and is a recent sale sold for 105. And it requires very little adjustment. I would like to see some discussion about well, this is a really relevant sale and why then the appraised value was say 105 as opposed to 120, which is maybe what the borrower would, would have wanted. So if the appraisal had taken a little bit of time and verbiage to describe why that sale was most relevant, then it would eliminate a lot of problems. But oftentimes appraisals will just take these four sales of 100 to 120 and average it at 110. And maybe 110 isn't, maybe 110 is fine, maybe 110 isn't fine. But there's no discussion about why that number was chosen out of this range. It's not that the final value opinion is so important as it is that the appraiser explain within the report how and why they got there. Is that what you're saying? Yes. It's lead me to the same conclusion that you came to. Even if I disagree with your conclusion, I would like to know how you got to your conclusion. And that's really relevant for, in particular, for a private appraisal, for somebody who's never seen an appraisal before or rarely sees them. You're doing it for an individual and they want to know why you chose the number that you did. This reconciliation and describing the relevance of the comparable sales that are chosen and which one is most relevant is very meaningful. And it's relevant, meaningful, and unfortunately, you don't see it a lot, right? I have had a lot of experience reviewing problem appraisals, not the best ones. Although I have done a fair amount of work, I've been seeing the best work and it's been an issue kind of across the board. Although I do see shining examples of really beautiful, beautifully done appraisals. And, and they make me uh, smile. I just love seeing work that is well done. And and those make your day, right? Oh my goodness. I, I want to reach out and hug the appraiser when I see those. <laughs> Rachel, please let me thank you. You are so kind to take your time. I know you're busy. You're so kind to take your time to be with us, to educate us, to tell us what's going on, to tell us what you see as a very experienced appraiser. And I appreciate it, and I'm sure the listeners appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Again, thanks for listening, everybody. We surely appreciate it. This is Tim Anderson, the appraiser's advocate. If I can ever be of help to you, please feel free to contact me. Tim at theappraisersadvocate.com. Thanks so much. Until then, be safe and well. And we're clear.